I mentioned last week that um, our family, or our, James and I rather, had, had gone to Waterworld with, their, um, with his, his youth football team. And while I was there, we were standing in the pavilion, and kids were out and about. And I was standing there talking to a dad. And I look over, and there's this older lady. Um, like, when I say older, I mean just not like a young person. Um, laying on the ground. And so, like, not a kid throwing a fit, like, like a full-grown woman lay, laying on the ground with kind of an arm like this, and she's kind of moaning and wailing. And it took me a second to kind of figure out, like, what's, what's going on? Um, and so I just stand there, and I, I watch for, for a second, and I see um, she's, she's, like, passed out, sick, drunk, something like that. And, and I... I'm like, okay, what's going on? Do I need to go over and check? And about that time, two guys walk up, and, and they're her, the people that are there with her. And they're talking to her, and um, they, they quickly get up and they leave. And so I'm like, okay, what's, what, is, what is this? And so I just sit there and watch, just for a, for a minute, and I just watch people walk by her. And, and there she is on the ground, literally, people just ignored her. Like, they're walking, and, like, some people, like, nearly had to step over her to, to not say something to her, to ask if she was okay. People just didn't stop. People just didn't, didn't like, seem to, to care. Well, then come to Waterworld employees, right? So, I'm like, all right, here, here comes some real help. And what do you think they did? It was like, if I don't make eye contact with her, it can be as if she, nothing's wrong. And as soon as they walk by, I'm like, all right, I'm going over to check on her. And I go over and I check on her, and she's thrown up, and there's, there's, there's throw up everywhere. And I'm like, oh, ma'am, are you okay? And I start talking to her, and she starts fussing at me. Um, so, like, maybe this is why people don't stop. I don't know. But her, maybe her blood sugar's dropped. I don't know. She's sick. And I stand there with her, and I just talk to her, and I finally wave, and, like, a paramedic comes over, and they get her, and they get her in a chair, and, and they, they take her out. But I, I sat there, and I was just shocked. You know, it was one of those deals where you're just shocked at the number of people who walked by and just pretended that she wasn't laid out on the ground. I think we hear about this kind of thing, don't we? We kind of hear about the kind of thing where we see uh, something bad has happened, and yet People just walk by pretending it doesn't happen. They don't, they don't stop when they're driving. They're, 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 they're in a hurry. They don't, they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to see it. I really think that that is an analogy of, of how we, as Christians, often view the world around us. I think as Americans, this is also true. I think this would be generally true of Americans, that, that we often just walk right by in our day without looking to see all the chaos and all the things, all the hurting people that are around us. And I think we, we can so craft our news outlets, our news intake, and, and what we choose to consume. We can, you know, we don't, we don't pay attention to, you know, BBC World News and know what's going on in the world. We can zoom in on on what's happened locally, though what's happening nationally or, or globally or even down the street in the back alley from us. Today, we're going to 
we're going to open up the Bible, and I've told you, like in the book of Judges, we're going to start out with a first judge. Remember, there are 12 judges, six major, six minor. There's a double introduction, a, a double conclusion. And as we go, the, the, the depth and spiral of depravity would just get deeper. And today, in the text, we are literally in one of the lowest points of human depravity in the Bible that we're going to have to wrestle with today. Um, maybe, uh, as, as far as like the mistreatment of, uh, of a woman, maybe the, the, the worst, most gruesome in all of the Bible. That's where we've spiraled to today. But here's what I want to tell you. What's going on in this text today isn't a lot different than a lot of things that happen in the world today. We just choose to walk by and not see it. So today, I want us to look at the ancient text. I want us to look at what God had for us in the book of Judges. And I want us to, to look then in light of the rest of the Bible, of church history, where we are today. But then I want us to take a mirror and turn it up, and I want us to look into our own hearts. Let's go. Uh, go ahead, take your Bibles. Turn to the book of Judges. We'll briefly be in 18. Going to flip over to 19, 20, and 21. We're going to cover a good bit of text. As we do that, I, I want us to, to hold this big truth today. This is the big truth that I want us to walk away with. Really cling to. And here it is. We must cling to God and his word lest we be destroyed by clinging to the world. We must cling to God and his word, lest we be destroyed by clinging to the world. Several weeks ago, I briefly summarized the story of, of Micah in chapter 18, uh, just to show how far from God Israel was at the time of Samson's birth. To, just to show you, like, this is, this is where they are. They were doing what was right in their own eyes and were oblivious to the fact that what they were doing was evil in the eyes of God. So remember in the book of Judges, it starts out saying, and what they did was evil in the eyes of God, but it ends up saying they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And, and th this, is, this is where they are. Micah, um, the idol-making thief. He's stolen this 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom. Uh, he, he gets caught. He, his mom gives, gives a certain portion of that money back, a certain number of pieces of silver, and they melt it down, and they, they carve this idol, and all of a sudden they've got interest in uh, these carbon images and gods. He comes across a Levite, uh, a Levite who, by the way, wasn't doing what what Levites should be doing, um, and, and he basically hires him to be his own personal priest. And so uh, we 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 talked about this that this is this is where uh, religions we kind of do syncretism, like we kind of syncretize the gods around us, and we can we can just take and and kind of take a God from over here and a God from over here, and we can make our own religion based off the cultures that are around us. And so this is what uh, Micah begins to do. Verse uh, chapter 18, 
uh, in the beginning of that, this is what it said. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And that, that's a loaded statement, right? Because think about the fact that there had not been a king. There's no king in Israel. Israel never had a king. They never had an earthly king, that is, right? God is their king. God has been their king. He's the one who's been in charge, who's led them. So then when you think about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, when you think about the days later when Moses would lead the people of Israel, when Joshua, his, his protege, would lead the people of Israel, who was the king? Who did those leaders point them to but God? They, they pointed them to, to cling to God, to cling to his word, and to make God their king. And in these days, it had been judges. Judges had been the one. They didn't function as kings, but the Lord in his mercy not giving Israel the wrath that they deserved, use these, these judges to point them to the king. But here we are in this spin out of depravity that's leading to total chaos. There was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of, of, of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. And so as they had kind of gone into the conquest, gone in the, 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 um, the, the promised land to take it, things had not gone their way. They had not depended on the Lord, and the Lord had not fought for them. If you skip down to verse 27, you'll see what, what happens to these people. But the people of Dan, they, they go to Micah, and they they're basically see that Micah's got this land, He's got, he's got this priest, and he's got this area, and it's like, hey, this, this seems like we might be able to take this. So the people of Dan took what Micah had made. By the way, that's talking about his false idols. And the priests who belonged to him, and they came to Laash, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan after Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laash at first. And the people of Dan set up carved images for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved images that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. And so here's my first big idea that I want to show you. Is that we commit idolatry when we carve God into our own image. When, to, when we commit idolatry when we carve God into our image. And so... Um, remember, we, we talked about syncretism and, and, and what that means and how we co-opt or adopt um, religions around us. This is what they were, this is what they did. So here they have, they have Micah, they see that it's going well with Micah. They see the land beyond where he had kind of homesteaded and called his was theirs, for the, you know, that, that they could take it. They did it, they take, his, they take his priest, which wasn't really a priest, though he was a Levite, he wasn't, he wasn't a Levitical priest. Um, he, he was... You know, had these carved images just like the Canaanites and uh, the different people around them who worshipped the Baals and Dagon and the, the different carved gods. And so they take and they literally carve these gods so that they can worship them. 
they think that, I mean, this, this is what this boils down to, is that those carved images can give them good vibes, good mojo, right? Uh, can be the silver bullet. They can find favor. That's, that's kind of how they think about these carved gods. They're, they're a tool that they want to put in their pocket so if they need them, they can get these, these gods to be like, in our minds, like little genies in a bottle that, that can do great things for them. Because they believe in the supernatural, just like us. He said, wait a second, just like us? Yeah, just like us. Like even the world around us today, those who, who aren't professing to say, like professing any sort of Christianity, there are religious people all around us. Man, I, I go in restaurants all the time here, and I see carved images. I see carved, carved gods. We have a lot of people around us who, especially who come from Eastern backgrounds who worship false gods. But you know what else I'm just seeing a ton of? And every time I mention this, uh, man, I, I, end up, I end up hurting, getting on somebody. Or I see a look in the congregation, a nudge uh, online. I, I, I remember Christmas Eve online, I got blasted over it. We have a lot of people who are really into crystals right now. They're buying crystals. There's crystal store popping. There's crystal stores popping up, and so this kind of form of, of, of witchcraft. I, I'm a Facebook marketplace junkie, always looking for a good deal. Um, people sell crystals on Facebook, and so you can like you can go. And I, I don't I, I don't ever buy. I mean, I buy I do buy rocks, landscaping rocks. Got a big project going on at the house. Anybody wants to come help shovel some rock? But not that kind of rock, right? I, there's these crystals and their and their power. I, I occasionally will, will be somewhere and I'll notice somebody with a crystal necklace, you know, and they're, they're looking for good energy, good good vibes, right? They're looking for good good mojo. Look, our hearts are idol making factories. We, we make all sorts of idols out of all sorts of things. Mentioned India. I was texting with our, our missionary in India this week, uh, AJ and I, when we were in India. Like every house we went into, there is an idol. Every village has an idol. Like they, you know, this is the sun god. This is the rain god. Whatever, whatever thing it is that you need, you create a god for that. I, I want you to know that, that, that because we aren't an idol carve, carving people, we don't like, I mean, we don't carve much of anything. Um, maybe we like make it on a video game. What's that called? Not Roblox. What's the other one? Minecraft. Thank you. Like we might make something like that and worship it, but like we, don't, we don't just make stuff and sit it on our mantle and think that that's that our, our God. But what we do, just like them, it's like we take some things from the Bible that we like and we kind of shape this, this image of God in our head of like this is who God is. God is love and, and uh, God, God, God's going to go before me and God's going to fight for me. God's going to heal me. God's going to, we, we kind of name all these things. Just listen to popular Christian music and you can kind of hear where we shape those things. And we throw out, we just kind of carve away the things of Scripture about God that we don't like. How many songs do you hear about God's wrath? God's being just and us getting what we deserve. Like, you don't, you don't hear those. You don't hear that said. Like, um, you don't see that on t-shirts, right? We, we kind of carve God up how we want them. We carve them into our own image just like they did.
we co-opt other things. When our culture points out that, uh, hey, your God says this, and that makes your God a bigot, we try to, we just carve that off of our God. Ah, we'll explain that away. Paul didn't really mean that. The Bible didn't really mean that. And we'll just carve, carve God up. And so we are just as guilty, and we do that, we are committing idolatry. We are, we are worshiping a God that is not a God of the Bible. Well, I'm going to show you what happens when you do that. When you stop worshiping the God of the Bible and you carve God, God up in, in however you would like him to be, it is not going to end well. Verse 19, verse 1, same thing. If this is, remember, there's double conclusions. That, that's kind of the first conclusion. This is the second cl- conclusion. And it starts the exact same way. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite. Now, we just had a story about a Levite who wasn't doing what they were supposed to do and got made a priest. Now we're also, and we're talking about, these are, these are the people of the Levitical line. These are people who are supposed to be the priest. These are supposed to be the people who are the, the moral compass, if you will, pointing the people to God. Was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. He had no business in Ephraim. Who took himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, let me just point out what a concubine is. A concubine is not his wife, but is essentially a servant whom he uses the same benefits that he would have with a wife, but treats her more like a servant than a wife, if you, if you get what I'm saying. So he, he, he would assume, you would assume that this Levite would have a wife, but this is a servant in whom he is treating like a wife in some ways and like a servant in other ways. And it says, his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and they brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay and remain with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. Now, he goes back to get his concubine. You don't know how the, the concubine came to be his concubine, but there's a decent chance that his father would have sold her, that he would have, would have paid, paid her. And when it says he's unfaithful, doesn't necessarily mean unfaithful with another man. It's just that he didn't want to be the, the concubine, so she goes back to... The, the father. Now, the father might have thought, like, this is trouble. This is going to be trouble on me. So when he sees him return, he's happy. And rather than it be about connecting with the concubine, what happens is they start partying for, like, four days. They're, they're, they're eating, and they're, they're drinking, and, they're, and they're, they're merry. And so they, they, they stay. It goes on and on. And, and some, some, in some ways, you kind of see... Um, the father, he just wants him to stay, and he keeps luring him to stay. And so, on the, I think the, I think the fifth day, as it rocks on, uh, it gets towards the end of the day, and this is what, what was known, is that they needed a full day's journey to get to a safe place, because they were going to cross unsafe country. And so, the father's ploy to kind of keep them there backfires on them, when finally, the man, the Levite, says, you know what? Uh, we're leaving. We're going to take off. And so they go. This reminds, reminds me, I laughed when I read this because 
Um, my grandmother lived about two hours from me growing up, and she would leave her house, and she would get to our house about uh, 9 a.m. or 9.30, and she would stay. And about 3.30, she would say, well, got to go, got to get over the mountain before it gets dark. And she would get up, and she would, she would leave. And sure enough, she always made, home, made it home before she was dark. That also meant that she didn't visit in the winter. Uh, because the days were shorter, you know, and this is the funny thing about my grandmother. Well, she, she knew she needed safe travels. They knew they needed safe travels, but, but no longer kind of playing the game, leaving hastily. And so they go, and it's, it's ending the near of the day, and, and where the servants are saying, hey, we should stop here, the Levites like, it is unsafe to stop here. We can't do that. So this is what the master said to him. This is down in verse 12. We'll not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. He said to his young man, Come, let us draw near to one of those, these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went on their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belonged to Benjamin. And so they're not in the land of foreigners. They're in, they're in the land of, of Israel. They're going to stop into a city of Israel, and they turned aside. So he goes and he sits down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And so the, the irony in this is so that, that, that it's like this bit of nationalism. Like those people are immoral and corrupt. They're morally bankrupt. They're not as good. So we're going to go sit down with our people. No one took them in. No one showed them hospitality. Along, verse 16, comes an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gabeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going? Where do you come from? He said to him, we're passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country in Ephraim, from which I am to come. By the way... This, is, this would end up, it didn't have the name then, but this is going to end up being the area of modern-day Jerusalem, where Jerusalem would come, right? So this is going to be the holiest of holy cities one day. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed. They washed their feet. They ate and drank. And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, listen to this. The men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. They said to the old man, the master of the house. Now, I'm just going to show you. This is not a safe place. This is not, this, these, these are the Benjaminites. His prejudice in his heart, his false belief in, 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 in who they were said that he was safe within them. Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And they were not looking to get acquainted and, and, and play a game of horseshoes or whatever game. That is not what they meant. They meant to know him in the most morally deplicable, corrupt way. No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. 
So then he says, don't do this vile thing. And look, he's about to do something in our heads that is incredibly vile. Behold, here are my virgin uh, daughter and, and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. And that just jumps all over us, especially like our society. And I think is right, by the way. Like, no, if someone's got to go out and, and, and deal with the, the mob, it ought to be the men that go out and deal with the mob. It ought to be the men that go out and do what's right and, and, and fight and hold up and do whatever. Not, here, just take the women. Don't hurt us. Men would not uh, listen to them. Uh, so the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her, and they abused her until morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. I want to throw up just reading that to you. Her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened up the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine laying at the door of his house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up! Let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on her donkey, and the man rose up and went on away to his home. Here's my next big idea. There is nothing new under the sun. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, as we read that, it should take you in your mind to Genesis chapter 19, to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where very much there's visitors sojourning in a land, and they come to the door, they beat on it, and it's the exact same thing. It's what they're wanting to do. And of course, you know the end of that story is that as at as God's people leave, um, he burns the place up. His wrath is poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, again, this is kind of a, a, a repeat of this, this story of the, 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 the depth of depravity of man. That there's nothing new under the sun. We read this story, and, and to us, it seems so, it, it is, right? It is so morally bankrupt. There's such levels of depravity and sickness in it. And we look at it and we're like, what in the world? Remi this is what I remind you. From the very beginning, I've told y'all, this, this book of Judges, there's messed up stuff in here. It's what, it's what God is showing us is, is the need for him. We read this, and so we often, we read it. And I told you, when we read the book of Judges, it's not that we, like, see the judges. So often, we judge the Bible. We judge God. God, how can you let this happen? God, how can you put this in your holy book? How can, how can, how can this be? How can these be your people? Listen, there is nothing new under the sun. We are the, the people at the wa water part walking by the lady on the ground. Because this is happening all around us. I remember in 2012, there was this, this a, a lot of news came out of India. Because it, it, was, it was, what happened was, there was this 
a young lady, 19-year-old, who got on the, a, a bus with her friend, and on that bus, she was gang raped. And uh, her and, and her friend ended up being thrown off on the side of the road. They were found the next day. People had driven by them, and they were found there laying naked. And she ends up, they go to the hospital, and after a while, um, they, she dies. And if y'all remember, there was like riots in India. And they were, like, they were like, we have got to change the laws. We have to protect women. We have to do this thing. In research for this sermon, I looked all that up, and I, I saw an article that was written in 2020, and it said, is India any safer for women? And in the headline of the article, the answer was no. And so we think, how can something like that still happen in the world? And yet, listen, it still happens all around us. Human sex trafficking happens. You have to know that in a week's time, when we're sitting here right off I-25, that somebody who's being human trafficked drives up and down the road past us. That, that different big cities, around different sporting events, this kind of abomination happens. But more than that. So, so many of us watch that kind of thing in our own home. In our closet, in the bathroom, in our bedroom. Because not only do we allow it to happen, we, we know that it happens and yet we watch it. We pay for it. We, we know that, that people are, are trying to, granted, some people do that to, to profit and make money off of it, but we also know that, that it happens, that people are exploited. Pornography is a $97 billion industry in the world. $11, million, 11 billion of that is the U.S. There's nothing new under the sun. We read this and we think this is just morally bankrupt. You know that statistically speaking, there's not a night that we go to bed in this city where a young woman isn't abused. You know, how is that possible? Well, think about it. Like, more than, there's more than 365 date rape cases that happen at CSU in a year. That, so statistically speaking, every night, you've, you've got to think, now obviously that, that may not be true every night, but statistically speaking, like there are, there are nights where this is, this is happening while we are, we are going to bed, while we're tucking our kids into bed, that there are things happening in our city around us to where people are being forced to do things they don't want to do. sad, isn't it? It's heartbreaking, isn't it? It's disgusting, isn't it? It gets worse. 
Verse 29, and when he entered his house, he took a knife. Taking hold of his concubine. By the way, I don't know if she was dead or alive. It doesn't really say. He divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces. And he sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So maybe there was something new under the sun. He said, nothing's ever happened like this before. Can you believe it? He basically takes her and sends her out like postcards to say to the rest of Israel, hey, there's a problem. The Benjamites are are broken. They're, They're crazy. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mezpah. And the the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mezpah, and the people of Israel said, tell us how did this evil happen? How did this evil happen? The Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine, and I cut her in pieces, and I sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed the abomination and outrage in Israel." Here's my next big idea. Is that sin leads us to do the unthinkable. When we read this passage, that is unthinkable. That you could take somebody and you could do that to them. It is absolutely unthinkable. But let me show you this. Did you notice his language? He played the victim. He played the victim. He said, they came against me. They were going to kill me. Is that true? Maybe they would have. That's not what they were wanting to do. How, they, they took my concubine. No, you offered your concubine. You gave that. You, 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 you gave the concubine. I want you to understand. One of the, one of the things that, just, this, that, that jumps all over me. Listen, this is the exact opposite of the gospel. This is antithetical to the way of the Christian. This is, this is the opposite of the way that Jesus would, did, right? In order to save himself, he sacrificed his concubine. Is that what Jesus did? No. When they came after Jesus... He, he didn't try to use somebody else's a scapegoat. Jesus sacrificed himself to save us. That's the good news of the gospel. Not that, not that, we, get a scape, that, that, that we, we get a scapegoat and we get out of trouble. No, that Christ so loved his us. That God so loved us that he gave his only son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life, would not be removed from God, never to know God, but would know God and be known by God. But yet sin leads us to do the unthinkable. It, it, it breaks us. When we, when, when we 
fall prey to idolatry, when we put our sinful hearts on the wrong thing, it leads us down paths that are unthinkable. And I want you to understand that we, we sit here and like this type of depth of depravity happens around us, is happening in the world. And so often when it happens, that sin begins to spiral out of control. And so, man, it starts a war. This is what happens. His, his lying and playing the victim starts a, a, a war. And it, not just a war, but a civil war. Right? So here, it's actually the second time it happens. It happens another time in the book of Judges, but it's way more of a skirmish where this is going to start like they're going to wipe out the Benjamites. This is, this is like they're thinking, hey, we're going to be God's wrath. We're going to be, we're gonna be the, the firestorm from heaven to take out Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to be us, and we're going to take out the Benjamites. So if you keep reading, what you're going to see is that they go and they wage war. They use all these, these massive um, amount of men. The Benjamites, they weren't, they weren't bad, bad warriors, by the way. They were, they were some really men of valor, good warriors, and they go to war and essentially, the other tribes of Israel wipe them out. Verse 34, there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all of Israel, and the battle was hard. But the Benjamites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All those were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. But it gets worse. They do this, they do, they do this kind of military tactic. They look back. They see that their city's burning or, or whatever. And, and anyway, they, they wipe all of them but 600 men out. But they also do something they, 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 that, that this is, wasn't of the Lord. This is not like the Lord told them to do this. They went to the city, and they killed all the women and children. They took out all of their wives. They took out everybody. So there were only 600 men, Benjamites, hiding in the rocks left. So here, they, their response to sin was more sin. Their, their response to sin wasn't, let's cry to the Lord and get this right. Their response was, let's do what's right in our own eyes. Let's handle this our way. That's our sense of justice, by the way. Is it not? That, that, that so often, I mean, let, let's just think about like uh, the riots of 2020 when there's, as, as people, there's this injustice. And so what do we do? We take to the street and burn down Target. Right, that's that's the, the kind of things that that's the kind of things that humanity and our brokenness, our response to sin, so often is sin rather than godly justice, rather than doing things God's way. So then it just gets worse. So then they're like, Well, Lord, we've messed up. This is unthinkable to us. How can this be? We we can't have a whole tribe of Benjamites wiped off, but a little detail I left out is after they killed them in their anger, they said, after they killed the women, they were like, and we're not going to let any of our women marry them. We're going to make sure that none of our daughters marry Benjamites. We're, we're done with them. Then they come to this place of, of repentance. 
And so there's these 600, and they come up with a way to go, and they find them wives. Skip down to verse 23. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off, which is a horrible way of doing it. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt their towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Here's my next big idea. Is that God uses the remnant to do his will. And what we're going to see unfold in Scripture is that even though the Benjamites were brought low, they were brought to nothing, that, that God would grow them back that God would use the remnant. This is actually going to paint a picture of us for Israel. That later on down the road, as Israel is wiped out, as they're brought to near nothing, that God would use the remnant, those left over, to rebuild his kingdom. That God uses the remnant to do his will. That we're going to see that even, even when man goes and they, they blow things up, they mess things up, they're reprobate, they leave, they apostatize, that the Lord, there, there will be a few that the Lord will keep, and the Lord will do a work in them and through them, and God only needs a few, and he'll use that remnant to do, build his kingdom. Because God is sovereign, God is control. If we, if we think through, God said he was going to use his people, he'd protect his people. He said to Abraham, you know, your, your offspring are going to be as sand on the seashores, and yet he was true to that. Think about in the New Testament when Jesus says to Peter, Hey, Peter, you're the rock in which I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They'll not overcome it. At the end of the day, what happens is that God uses a remnant. Because, man, we, we mess things up. We build idols. We fall after sin. We go in these, these cycles, and we're led down away. But God is faithful. God is steadfast. God is unwavering. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise, as we saw last week. God, God can move, and he can do far beyond what we can destroy. He can make new. Listen to verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that is the end of the book of Judges. And if that's all that we knew, we would be incredibly sad. But what we know is that God is going to bring them a king, don't we? He's going to bring them a king in Saul. And boy, Saul's going to fall short, but then he's going to bring him King David, who's going to restore things as they should be. We're going to see God's faithfulness through King David, the weak boy of the world that God used to shame the wise. But what do we know? Is that after David, David came Solomon, and Solomon, boy, he sinned, but he did bring the temple back. He did do, he did do the, some, some really good things. And after that, what do we do? Israel spirals back out of control again, back into sin cycles until there's a war between the two, that, that the two feud, and that they're made exiles, and the cities are destroyed, and people are destroyed, and people are killed. But what do we know? That God, in his goodness, sends his son Jesus to be the king. And we read... 
we read today in, in, in our opening, we read in Revelation, that God is going to make all things new. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first time Heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Here's my last big idea, is that God is the only true and eternal king. These were a people without a king. There is but one king. There's but one man that does not have a corrupt heart, and his name was Jesus. And that one man who, who did not have the corrupt heart, who was not capable of doing these things, the one man who didn't walk by and just keep walking, pretending that the wrong wasn't happening, was Jesus. And Jesus is, with God, sitting on his throne Listen, there was no king in Israel, but I want you to understand that is not our truth. We do not live in a place that there is no king in the land. We live in the place where the one true and living God who was on his throne then is on his throne now. And rather than making idols and, and uh, shaping our own false gods, we ought to worship the one true and living God. God is the only hero in the Bible. God is the only one. We look to God's word. He's the, the only one who can make all things new. He's the only one whom we should give our affection to. He's the only one in which we should worship. He is good. He is loving. He is merciful. He is gracious. And while we deserved his wrath, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. God was rich in mercy and rich in grace, and he sent his son Jesus for us. And so let us worship him today. Let us behold our God today, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Father, we love you and we praise you. And Lord, we read hard text in Scripture like today. And it challenges us. It makes us look around and it makes us not like what we see. And so we cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Lord, we cry out, make all things new. God, do what only you can do and do it through your remnant. Do it through your people, that your people who, who have placed their faith and trust in you would not just walk by, but would solve problems with the gospel for your glory and for our good. 
Father, let us cry out today that you and you only are good. Let us remove the idols from our lives. Take away our false worship and let our worship be of the one true and living God. Father, we love you and we praise you. Let's stand and sing a song of response.